Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome back to the Ocean Bunker podcast. Uh, I'm joined this evening by co-hosts Kyle J. Glenn and Ocean Technical and our guest for this evening at Global Mill Info. Um, today marks the start of season four of the podcast um, which will be uh, going back to the old format of uh, a full 12 episode season um, and we're hoping to have a, a string of guests over the next few months um, potentially including some uh, senior uh, former members of Her Majesty's Armed Forces uh, on for discussions with us. Um, as I say, today we're joined by uh, Global Milinfo, um, who is a very well-renowned member of the uh, open source intelligence community on Twitter. Um, I believe you've got, is it over 200,000 followers, something like that? Yeah, that's correct. Um, so we're going to start uh, by just sort of talking to you a little bit about uh, how you got into the OSINT community um, and what your sort of areas of expertise are. Of course. Well, yeah, first, like to thank you all for allowing me to be a guest for season four. I'm happy to be here for episode one. And to kind of dive into it, I started my open source or scavenging the news networks uh, September of 2017. And the most notable was when North Korea tested their sixth uh, nuclear device. Uh, in September 2017, um, of course, that's still a uh, debate of the yield and capabilities of that device. But it's kind of launched me to hopefully scatter the uh, networks of finding reliable information, anything like that, especially in the Pacific Asian um, kind of areas. That's more of my uh, areas of study, especially in college work. Uh, but that's kind of what allowed me to get up and going and start uh, hopefully a reliable Twitter um, network to get the best news that comes forward, get something that's instant. Because um, I know, fortunately, nowadays, mainstream media sources are not as reliable or as trustworthy or they're not as uh, concurrent as other networks on Twitter can be. Yeah, and I, I, I know you've made the argument before and, and you know, we'll continue to make it on, on – uh on this podcast that, that sometimes, you know, uh, open source into Intel or open source information can, can augment, if not, you know, um, uh, uh, partially beat, uh, more traditional news on a, on a lot of fronts, but sort of where specifically does it, it really beat that traditional news when it comes to dealing with the Korean peninsula and sort of, you know, that, that East Asia scene. Yeah. So that's a great question. Cause I know, unfortunately, a lot of countries over there nowadays is getting tighter on finding reliable news sources or trying to get the best information. I know it's North Korea. Unfortunately, the only sources you can really find are going to be with Yonhap, um, the South Korean mainstream media for any type of uh, internal or external um, sources on that far. Um, North Korea in general, the only things you can see that's trustworthy would be, uh, of course, KCNA, um, KCTV, and all those. Um, so for, in terms of traditional open source, especially in the Asian atmosphere, a lot of it is unfortunately going through the deep dives of just finding the follower counts on Twitter that are not as uh, popular to get any type of dive information. I know of quite a few years ago, there was only one point we actually had um, a follower from of China, who was actually near the border of the Korean Peninsula of North Korea, and they were able to get some information of disputes, of course, when COVID happened and so forth. Um, so the traditional aspect of open source in those general areas is going to be extremely tough, not what we're used to with Ukraine, uh, you know, any type of tensions in the U.S., Europe, all that stuff that we're kind of used to and seeing today. 
um, but in the traditional sense of any type of open source over there, unfortunately, it's all dirty work. Um, relying on sources the best you can, you always have to verify, especially in terms of news coming out on that part. Um, but in most cases, it's usually just relying on major news sources or knowing the correct people to talk to. No, that's super interesting. And when it comes to, you know, dealing, like you said, the, the main sources of information from North Korea come from, you know, those official North Korean state sources, how or how or what is the best way to sort of observe them and sort of get that information from those networks? Yeah, so uh, luckily enough, um, several years ago, we didn't have really the opportunities or the network that we do today. Um, so I know do KCNA actually has their own website. Um, there are some debates if that's actually a, a proper cover-up of the, the true natures of the, of the state media, especially as you know, North Korea is known for their cyber units and getting ways of spreading malware or, or ransomware and all that stuff. Um, but they actually do have their own website that has um, the information that's all, of course, in, in Korean. So um, it, Google Translate is going to be a feature on that that is pretty accurate to the natures. Um, in most cases, I usually NK News, which is becoming more uh, mainstream in South Korea. Uh, they actually have a whole bunch of experts who focus on, you know, um, nuclear uh, weapons, conventional warfare, things like, like that. Uh, political, um, South Korean, they do have experts on North Korea as well. Um, and they actually do host um, KCTV, uh, which is a link you can go to and watch um, the broadcasts of um, North Korean state media. Uh, those are usually really the, the two main of actually consuming or understanding what happens from that country. Um, in most cases, other than that, you're mostly going to hear sources talking to Yunhap about what's copying into North Korea. Because uh, the intelligence services are going to actually have the best of understanding what's going on that North Korea won't actually go out and say. Um, but in terms of just someone who is wanting to look in to see what's going on, the best bet I would recommend would be Yunhap. NK News, of course, if you'd like to, you can actually go to the official um, media website uh, for uh, North Korea State Media. I know NK News does have an English version, which can get translate uh, with archives of the Rodong, um, KCTV, KCNA, all that stuff. Yeah, and then there are uh, obviously, I, I know there, there are jokes, um, at least around decoding what North Korean news is actually saying. When I mean, when it comes, you know, some of the interesting things, at least I've sent, seen in the past, are you know, utilizing the pink lady or uh, Ri Chun-hee um, for some of the more uh, uh, bombastic announcements just because of her, her presence. Do, do you think there are any, like, not saying that there's a cheat sheet for decoding North Korean news, but but is are, are there some major sort of patterns that you've seen in the past, at least leading up to nuclear tests or, or post-missile tests? Is, is there, you know, sort of a common thread in between that? Yeah, so I know the Pink Lady, that used to be a marker. Uh, when Pink Lady showed up on the mainstream media within North Korea, we knew something big's about to happen. She's about to announce maybe a missile test, nuclear test, or of course when the death from Daniel happened, that was announced by her. Um, so nowadays, they kind of use her for everything. Um, so in most cases, it's hard to really use her as a proper symbolic gesture to that things are actually going to happen in North Korea. Um, so now it goes back to you have to look who's around Kim Jong-un, um, pretty much his sister, um, the military chiefs, all that stuff. Because there's constant promotions because he's constantly wanting to um, internally create his grip on power still. That still is happening even though he's been eight years um, as the leader of North Korea. Um, so one thing I would say to kind of decipher of like what's North Korea really saying 
um, you would really go to Rodong, um, and you would go to KCNA, um, because one of those two, one's for internal audience, one's for external. In most cases, the more you hear about it's KCNA, because that is um, made for external audiences. So whenever you see something like that announced out, um, that mostly means it's for you know, us in the US, South Korea, Europe, all that stuff. Um, in most cases, what I usually look forward to is who's saying it. So if the sister, she's pretty much the main front of kind of announcing ex uh, external affairs for North Korea, especially within the US, all that. That's been recently changed to another member um, within their you know, diplomatic um, functions there. Um, but whenever she says she's usually the bad cop in situations like this, uh, so whenever she says stuff, uh, the most recent incident should be, I believe it was in either 2020 or 2021, she came out saying that the balloon propagandists that kept coming from South Korea, that's a threat. They're going to remilitarize the DMZ, do all this stuff. So some of that happened, and then Kim Jong stopped it. Um, so it really depends who says it, what to look forward to. Um, but I would always pay attention to the rhetoric when it comes to um, exercises, military threats, and so forth. It's, an, it's a 50-50. Most times something will happen. Other times we're just breathing, um, you know, bad air from it. Um, but like with the traction this year, there's been a lot of missile tests and then she's been the forefront, KCNA has been the forefront. Um, so I know there's there's not one thing you have to look forward to. It's just kind of have to understand the rhetoric from being, you know, opening the arms to gun hole with missile launches. Yeah, and, and I know you you mentioned uh, Kim Jong-un's sister, uh, Kim Yo-jong. Sort of what's your general take on her? I know her rise to power has definitely been... Uh, somewhat quick she was obviously a background character uh post um her father's death but sort of she she does seem to have have uh gained a lot of power within the party and within the country yeah so she's definitely a special case um because in most cases you know siblings especially with um the poisoning of uh, kim jong's brother um, a lot of his siblings were kind of are either in the light or he does things to consolidate power. So especially her in the last few years have been very interesting how she's been rising so quickly. And in most cases, um, from my understanding with also talking with others, that she is more of a hardliner than Kim Jong-un is. Um, so that's why she's always playing the bad cop. I do believe there's probably more in the background where she has probably more support of the military. Maybe other officials do. Um, but overall, her character is more of a stronger stance, you know, hardliner, North Korean first type policies. So whenever you see things going on, she usually has a front. Nowadays, um, I don't know for sure what's going on in that aspect, but you don't really hear too much from her anymore. You, there's, There is still a few uh, announcements that are made whenever, you know, the U.S. stirs some stuff up or South Korea, especially with Yoon being the new president of South Korea happens. Um, but you don't really hear too much about her anymore um, in an aspect which that could change, especially if a new nuclear as happens or if a new exercise happens, um, she'll come out and make an announcement about that or saying, you know, this was made because of the imperialism of U.S. and South Korea, yada, yada. Uh, but I know she is definitely was taking the forefront and she likely is. But most cases you still see here be behind Kim Jong-un. So she is still in the role that is um, somewhat still powerful where she probably is making decisions with Kim Jong-un or not. If she's not making decisions, she's helping influence her brother. Uh, so it's kind of my aspect of the um, the sister, um, but it's hard to say if she still has the power that she did uh, before COVID or beginning years of COVID. Uh, but now it, it's I don't. It's hard to say as I don't really hear too much from her or see her in much pictures anymore. Okay, and I, and not to put you on the spot, but I think my oh, final question, not to yeah, but but I think my final question uh, sort of related to the issue is with sort of this new political situation in the north. Say five years from now, what do you, what do you think will be going on on the Korean Peninsula? 
So that's actually a great question. I know a lot of experts is that they're trying to analyze, you know, pretty much the goal is to keep Kim Jong in power. That's kind of the, the, the aspect for the Kim Jong regime. Um, in those takes, I know when there was those talks that Kim Jong died due to a complication, there was a lot of conversations about who would, you know, next take power. And the idea is a sister. I know a lot of people, is she's a hardliner, so a lot of things people are crazier for the, the regime or for neighboring regional power and so forth. But within five years, it probably, I mean, with, with COVID happening, there was a lull of periods, especially the diplomatic um, adventures that took place under President Trump. Um, but now, with the, back to the testing phase, in most cases, we would go into the testing phase, diplomatic outreach back to the testing phase. So it, it's been off and on every year. I mean, in my stance, it will likely still be status quo unless uh, another president or, of course, the president of South Korea does something saying enough's enough. Um, I know President Yoon uh, threatened a preemptive strike against their nuclear program. Like I said, it, it's hard that any of this stuff will actually happen. Like I said, they know what would happen if something like that actually occurred within the Korean Peninsula. Um, but it will likely be status quo, um, from my understanding, especially from looking at um, most recent events, looking at past outreaches. Uh, I'm under the understanding that most things will likely stay the same. Um, I'd be surprised if they don't. Uh, like I said, um, the, uh, the Korean Peninsula is always something new is happening. Um, some Koreans don't like one thing, North Koreans don't like another. Um, so it's hard to say what's actually going to happen. But at the moment, I would still believe that the um, within five years, the status quo will still be the same unless something that we don't know happens during that timeline. Yeah, thanks for that, uh, Global. Um, what we're probably going to do now is um, we'll move on to sort of uh, topics in the news um, I'm wary that we don't want to spend too much time on Russia and Ukraine because, mm -hmm. let's be honest, the entirety of season three was Russia and Ukraine. Um, but, Kyle, if, if you wouldn't mind just sort of giving us an update over sort of what's been going on uh, briefly in the last few weeks in Ukraine. Uh, yeah, so I guess the um, biggest event of the last of weeks was the um the sinking of the tugboat tug ship rescue vessel but i'm not entirely sure what the best uh, best way to describe it would be uh one second i'll be able to get the full title of it up uh, it is a project 22870 rescue tug um that was sunk near snake island in the black sea on i believe it was friday um, it was struck by two uh, harpoon missiles, um, Ukrainian harpoon missiles, um, and as far as I understand it, has sunk. Um, I think last we heard uh, from both sides, Ukraine and Russia, were saying there was at least 10 killed. Um, with more wounded, I'm sure the, um, the real figure will come out <clears throat> eventually. Um, yeah, but this is the... So there's been a number of boats, ships, sunk by Ukraine since the war started. Obviously, the most notable was the, uh, the Moskva. Um, God knows how long ago that was now. Uh, I guess we, uh, months, I think, we're into now talking about it, rather than, you know, days or weeks. It was, uh, I think, uh, six weeks ago, maybe. Um, and since then, of course, they were, the, the Ukraine destroyed a number of other kind of like patrol boats and uh, small landing vessels and, and things of that nature with their, 
their TB2 drones. Um, so I suppose like the main point is, you know, like for for a country without a uh, without a navy, really doing a lot of damage to the um, the the black Black Sea fleet of the Russian navy. Um, you know, I I think you know just trying to think off the top of my head, you know, they think they've probably destroyed a good. I think we. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. We're we're very close to being in double figures of um you know like russian vessels destroyed in the black sea since this war started um back in february um and again i think it's you know another example of you know when uh, more advanced weapons are being supplied to ukraine um they are having a difference uh you know as well as you know the carpoon missiles there was the um you know the triple seven artillery pieces which have like a you know a longer range than the uh than the standard kind of russian Russian artillery, um, and you know reports from uh, from the Ukrainians themselves are saying that they are having a big difference um, in the kind of artillery battles, which is which is you know mostly what this war has kind of uh, become at the moment. It's just very large scale artillery battles. It's not a huge amount of forward movement um, on either side. You, you Russia slowly advancing. Um, in the Luhansk region, um, there are reports that Ukraine are, you know, doing the same thing and it's slowly advancing in in Kherson. Um, but there hasn't been any kind of major, uh, you know, compared to the, what things were like, you know, at the start of this war when there was, you know, tens of kilometers of, of advance in a single day on on both sides, you know, over the course of the war, um, that seems to have slowed down significantly. Um, you know, it seems like Russia, have, you know, like I said, like I mentioned before, seems to have learned their lesson a little bit and they're not kind of overextending and they're just content to, you know, take these towns and cities street by street, you know, comfortable in the knowledge that they have the numbers to be able to, to do it. Um, I'm trying to think of whatever kind of big events there was the uh, another helicopter shoot down, of course, again, um, last week. Um, I don't think it's. I don't think it was confirmed um, which system uh, was used to shoot it down. But I believe um, uh, an Azov Telegram account was claiming that they shot it down with, I believe, just like an Igler man pads or or similar. I don't think it was anything provided by uh, the West that assisted with that. And uh, but again, you know, like the, the um, number of aircraft being shot down has decreased markedly. Uh, markedly. As well, um, I think mostly due to, like I said, many of us have seen the videos of like the Russian helicopters and even the jets kind of doing the whole uh, lobbing, I suppose, of, of like unguided rockets. You know, they'll they'll fly forward at high speed and then kind of pitch up and then fire their rockets um, in the air in an arc to get extended range on them and also, of course, to allow them then to stay out of. Um, out of range of any kind of air defense that Ukraine might have in that region. So it seems, you know, like Russia are, you know, they're aware of, you know, Ukraine's anti, um, like air defense and are, I think that they have a healthy level of, um, concern about it. Um, which is why I think we've seen, you know, less aircraft, um, being shot down. It, you know, if reporters believe, you know, it doesn't, they haven't reduced, you know, the amount of, um, sorties they, they're doing on like a daily basis it seems they're just kind of not flying over ukrainian 
uh, held territory as uh, freely as maybe they, they tried to at the start of the war. Um, but yeah, it seems the war is kind of, I don't want to say winding down, because it's absolutely not kind of winding down in terms of like the intensity of the fighting, but it seems to be kind of, yes, yes, stalling. It seems to be kind of, we're kind of inching towards almost a stalemate, um, which, you know, I'm... I'm going to hesitate to kind of say who that might be good for and who might that might not be good for at the moment. If you know, if it does become a stalemate, because um, you know it's very difficult to to judge. Uh, but yeah, it, it seems like you know at, at the moment artillery is the um, the weapon of choice for for both sides, um, and as well as like, I believe like you know the um, the head of logistics for the Ukrainian army came out the other day. Um, and can kind of like, confirmed, kind of claimed how many losses they've had since the start of the war. Um, I, I I believe I believe his claim. You know, it it, it seems um, as you know as the article again kind of said it, and they were kind of saying you know they need a lot more help. Um, so he claims that they've lost since February twenty fourth. Obviously, we're recording this now on nineteenth of June, so. Uh, just under four months, in just under four months of war, they've lost thirteen hundred uh, infantry fighting vehicles, four hundred tanks, um, and seven hundred artillery pieces in four months. So you know that's a huge, well, yeah, it's a very large number uh, and very significant. Um, I had a look through like Oryx's, uh, tr you know, his tracking of Russian losses in that same period. Um, you know, Russia have lost uh, 707 tanks. Um, that's destroyed and captured. I've kind of looked at there. Um, in terms of like IFEs, uh, they've lost slash captured 1,162. Um, and only 237 artillery have been confirmed lost or captured. And that's kind of towed artillery, self-propelled artillery, and rocket artillery as well. Um, Obviously, you know, the real number could be higher, but that's just everything that Oryx has been able to confirm at the moment. Um, which, as we know, he's probably the most, well, definitely the most reliable source of kind of confirmed losses in this war at the moment. Um, so it seems, you know, it seems like Russia might be suffering on there or there about the same level um, when it comes to, um, you know, armoured vehicles, tanks, uh, BMPs, BTRs, that kind of thing. Um, as Ukraine, you know, and you know, in, in terms of tanks, looks like suffering almost t twice as many losses as as Ukraine in that respect. Um, but seems to be doing a lot better um, in terms of um, artillery losses. Um, why that is, I, I I couldn't say. It's possible. Um, that you know, as we saw back in 2014, 2015, a lot of uh, artillery attacks came from across the border. So it's possible that you know Russian artillery is firing cross border into Ukraine. Perhaps you know, perhaps Ukrainians have been maybe more hesitant to fire back into Russia, at least maybe in the early days of the war, um, than they are now. Um, that's just you know my theory. I'm not saying that's you know, definitely definitely what's happening. Uh, but yeah, so it seems like you know, for the most part, the thing they're asking for again is, is artillery. Um, as so, you know, as I said, they, they've had you know quite a large loss, um, in terms of you know, their the artillery pieces over the, over the last few months. Um, 
and you know with them saying that uh you know like the american uh not produced what i'm trying to say supplied uh m triple seven artillery um i've had a big difference that seems to be what they're kind of pushing for both last and of course there is the um was it ever confirmed whether it was the HIMARS that's or HIMARS, I don't know the best way to pronounce it, um, is gonna be sent or was that just speculation? I don't know if the US ever confirmed which rocket artillery they were gonna send to them. I think it um, was but confirmed that it was gonna be HIMARS. Um I don't know that any of them have been actually no, I sent. I haven't US. seen anything. Um, because I think we'd, we'd probably hear about that quite quickly if, um, mm -hmm. if those systems arrived on the ground in Ukraine. Yeah. And, um, of course, you know, like the, the US and others have been saying, like, you know, they, they don't want to supply weapons to Ukraine, um, that can hit Russia, which, I, again, I think is a weird, weird statement to make. I think it was Germany or France. I think it was in France as well. I said the same thing very recently in it. They said we want to supply weapons to Ukraine that they can use to defend themselves, um, but stuff that they can use to, like you know, attack Russia, such as jets and tanks, are off the table. And I was like, well, surely they are also defensive. It depends on how you use them, right? Yeah. Like anything can be offensive or defensive. It depends literally how how it's used. So that that statement didn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, I'm not sure. I I think particularly from France and Germany, the response to the whole crisis has been rather confusing. And I, I think we have a, a touched on this before. Um, Germany, particularly in the early days of the war, had a very, very isolationist stance towards helping out Ukraine. Yeah. Although to a certain extent that has changed now, particularly under um, their new chancellor, Olaf Scholz, um, we, we're still kind of seeing that Germany is not a hundred percent committed to helping Ukraine. Um, I know that there's still sort of the ongoing discussion about the fact that Germany is still receiving um, fuel shipments from Russia um, and is still paying for those fuel shipments, among other things. Um, it's one of those weird situations where you you would expect NATO to be a little bit more um, sort of unified in their response and you've got the likes of, of, of Germany and, and, and France, as I say, um, who seemingly are not quite so, <coughs> how to put it, not, not, not to towing the party line, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and, and to go back about the, the HIMARS, apparently there's an article here that says um, the first system should be arriving in Ukraine at the end of June. So again, it's 19th today, any time in the next seven to ten days, probably, um, if, if this article is to be believed or trusted, um, we might start seeing them, maybe not in use, uh, but at least maybe some kind of press shots, probably, of them in, in Ukraine. Um, so it looks like the US Joint Chiefs of Staff announced that the United States has trained 60 soldiers to operate the M142 HIMARS, mm. um, has trained 420 on how to use the M777 howitzers, um, 300 on the M109 self-propelled howitzer, um, 129 and, well, 129 on the M113 armoured personnel carriers. So, 
I imagine those 60 soldiers will be obviously kind of training training uh, other soldiers themselves when they get uh, to Ukraine, when the systems turn up. Um, I suppose like the real question is, you know, how much of a difference they're going to have. Um, you know, I'm just having to quickly do some Googling as well to double check the uh, the range of the, the HIMARS, but from memory, I don't think it was... Um, you know, massively different to some of like the the Russian systems, right? Like, I think, yeah, I mean, yeah it looks like you know, like a standard munition, you know, like the standard rockets. You're looking at between thirty and seventy kilometers, based on um, what rocket you're using. And then, of course, there's um, it, it has the ability to fire uh, rockets or missiles, or like up to you know between 190 and 310 miles. Um, or 300 and 500 kilometers based on like the, the those particular munitions which i believe us already said they wouldn't be providing right the um yes that's correct the precision strike missile and the one which name escapes me um but yeah yeah so they, they, they're the ones that won't be provided so you know 30 to 70 kilometers you know the russia have rocket artillery in that um that they can fire you know in that range mm. so I suppose maybe it's the accuracy that um, would be the game changer, so to speak, here, if that is the case. Um, but I, I suppose anything, you know, replacing uh, destroyed stock in, in with whatever it is is obviously going to be beneficial. Um, you know, I guess we'll just have to wait and see, just how, you know, if it, if it does make a difference and how big a difference that might be um, compared to, you know, the kind of Soviet weapons that they've been using thus far yeah and I think it's fair to say that at this stage we are probably looking at this conflict extending well past I would imagine the end of this year um, mm -hmm. I think back in the early days we were kind of unsure as to whether Ukraine would sort of survive the Russian onslaught um, as time's gone on we, we've kind of been filled with a great deal of hope that Ukraine might actually win um, all beers in, in a very long drawn out fight um, I think at this stage as we say because things are stalling in the way that they are um, and despite the, the amount of equipment that is being pumped in by uh, NATO countries um, it, it, it's not going to end anytime soon the, you know, the, the Ukraine conflict and indeed everything that has been affected by that um, global fuel prices food supplies and so on um, unfortunately are going to be a fact of life for the foreseeable future um, and I, I can't really see at this moment in time this conflict swinging either way any time in the next six months No, and it seems like even like Russian state media are like almost preparing uh, the Russian people for a, a, you know, a drawn out conflict um, you know, talking about this could go on for years and even some um, rather popular kind of like Russian um, Twitter accounts kind of saying, you know, the the, the typical, um, like, you know, unironically saying this will all be over by Christmas kind of thing, um, which, you know, is uh, very well known for what, um, I believe it was uh, what the British kind of officers were telling the men before, you know, before going to World War One, right? Is that yeah. what I was told? It was all over yeah. by... Christmas. Christmas of 1914. Yeah. Um, 
obviously we all know how that <laughs> that ended up. So yeah, I, I can't see that. You know, this this we, I mean, as close to it as as we can. Literally halfway through the war, right? You know, we're nineteenth of June, so yeah, we, we're just over the second week of the sixth month of the year. So it's we're, we're pretty much halfway through the year. Um, the way things are going, again, I, I, I can't see anything, any kind of significant movement um, prior to the, you know, prior to the end of this year, but you never know. <laughs> you really do never know with, um, you know, it's been, it's been a long time since we've seen a kind of war of this um, size. So I guess it's, it's really, really difficult to say, you know, they, you know, it's, you know, I myself have had many predictions already on this war kind of be completely wrong, which is, you know, like, as, as most of us have, I'm sure. You know, I I thought it'd be over within the first couple of weeks, first month at least, I thought it would be all over. Um, you know, kind of similar to the war between um, Azerbaijan and Armenia we saw back in 2020. I believe that was maybe six months, uh, six weeks, two months, right? Maybe a little bit over. Yeah, um, yeah that was about right. And, and, and you know, and, and that was quite a significantly, you know, obviously quite localized um but you know it was a significant war between two quite you know modern militaries at the time um and yeah that was yeah that was over quite quickly and um, with one side you know as i expected on this side kind of one side kind of you know kind of walking it a little bit um yeah but it's it's really difficult to kind of see um you know any kind of end game in the at least at least in the near future, but yeah, it's very very difficult to kind of see how this war is going to end at any time in the next few months. Yeah. And and it, it brings us on, I think, quite nicely to um, another topic which has sort of prop, popped up this week. Um, for those of you not aware, um, the head of the professional head of the British Army, the chief chief of the general staff, um, there's been a change of command this week um, with uh, General Mark Carlton Smith handing over. Uh, to General Patrick Sanders, um, and I don't know if you've had a chance to read the um, the article, um, Kyle, but um, General Sanders has come out and very, very clearly said that one thing the Ukraine conflict does show is that the size of the British Army at the moment is nowhere close to where it needs to be, and that <coughs> the UK needs to start looking at the very distinct possibility that a conflict in Europe will need to be fought and that the army needs to grow in order to be able to do that role adequately. Yeah. I mean I mean if you just look, I mean, you know, Ukraine have said they've lost what was it they said? Four was it four hundred tanks in um this you know, this four months of war. Yeah. Um and I can't remember how many tanks total the British Army have in the you know kind of active at the moment is it like 200 250 or something like that something like that yeah although the the number is due to reduce isn't it yeah yeah exactly so it's going down not up so i mean like obviously you know like uh, british army tanks aren't, aren't necessarily the same well definitely aren't the same as you know the kind of like old soviet stock that the ukrainians are using um but uh, you know as we can all see they're kind of like the technology um you know, kind of like anti-tank technology is kind of like outpacing technology used to you know, protect tanks at the moment. You know, we've seen in Syria um, and Iraq, you know, kind of like many um, kind of modern tanks, um, 
you know destroyed by decades old anti tank uh, anti tank weaponry um and it's the same kind of thing you know we're seeing in in you in ukraine now like the you know these russian um quote unquote like modern tanks are being destroyed kind of en masse by um anti tank weaponry which is you know 20 30 40 years old um and you know british tanks especially aren't immune to you know an anti tank missile um, we're also seeing a, a shift sort of in the technology as well as much as we are seeing a lot of sort of very modern anti-tank missiles being used um, against these these vehicles we're also seeing some relatively inexpensive and not overly technical equipment being used to great effect mm -hmm. against tanks as well i mean we we saw during the azerbaijan uh, armenia conflict um the use of drones was quite prevalent there um, we're seeing it again in this in this conflict, Ukraine, Russia. Um, mm -hmm. Very inexpensive drones dropping. Um, sometimes like anti tank grenades. <laughs> sometimes literally grenades um, or yeah. very very small bomblets onto um, enemy uh, tanks and so on, and it, it's having a very very significant effect. Uh, and as you quite mm -hmm. rightly point out, obviously the British Army's uh, vehicles are designed to be very much more high-tech and very much more modern than the equipment soviet equipment being used by ukraine and russia but i think it it kind of throws into contrast that realistically it's it's all well and good having very technically advanced vehicles and therefore not having very many of them but in a conflict such as the ones that we we've seen in recent months and years um it's becoming more and more apparent that as you say, the, the, the technology to counter these vehicles is, is so far advanced ahead of the, the technologies to defend these vehicles that mm -hmm. really by spending so much on, you know, a small number of vehicles, you are very much putting all of your eggs in one basket. And it, I have to wonder if part of the future of ground warfare is going to involve moving away from these sort of very high-tech very expensive you know sort of one-off um small production run vehicles and moving back towards kind of what we saw i suppose during world war ii where you have multiple types some of them designed very very cheaply and, and deliberately so so that they can be mass produced because uh, as you say were the British Army the ones fighting Russia right now um, under the current circumstances, arguably the entire British tank uh, fleet would have been entirely destroyed by now. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the only reason that that's not the situation for Ukraine is because, as I say, they have a significant number more of less advanced um, and very much older technology uh, tanks in their arsenal. Yeah, and it's, it's you know it's, it's kind of become above all else it's kind of become a war of attrition at the moment. Mm. Uh, and you know if the British Army did get into a kind of war of attrition with anyone at the moment, it's more than likely going to lose. Um, even with kind of like technology technologically superior um, you know, equipment, you know it it doesn't matter if you know you're destroying two of their tanks for every one of yours if they have four times as many tanks as you. Yeah, exactly. um, so, 
you know, like I think, like you know, like the the British Army in its current form obviously is, you know, it, it's it's suitable for, um, kind of like operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, in which you know they're getting shot at by maybe two or three guys with just kind of RPGs at a time, and you know, like the the tanks and 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 vehicles are more than capable of of withstanding that. But if they came up against kind of a proper, um, modern military with um, you know, tanks of their own and air support and artillery support. Um, there needs to be, I think, yeah, it definitely needs to be. There's a lot of, I don't want to say panic, but I think there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, rejigging and kind of revamping of, of the armed forces, I suppose, over, over the next few years, definitely, to better prepare for a you know, more conventional war, I think. Yeah, as, as you said, the, the conflicts that the British Army has been involved in in the last 20 years have not been sort of peer-on-peer or near-peer conflicts. It, it mm-hmm. has, for the most part, been chasing terrorists around the deserts of, of, of the Middle East and, you know, and, and so on. Um, yeah. Obviously, with that, you know, the design, the structuring of the military, you know, not not just the, the army, we're, we're talking the Air Force as well, um, and, and in some situations the Navy on, on as well as that, um, it's all been very much focused around that style of operations and there is such a massive gap between the capabilities needed for a conflict such as that and as we say something like a peer-on-peer conflict or a near-peer conflict like Ukraine-Russia is um, and obviously we've, we've discussed it in previous episodes the fact that in light of recent world events the world, particularly NATO and the US, are very much looking towards China now as sort of the next major threat to uh, international security. Um, probably more so, I would argue, than, than Russia is at the moment, although obviously Russia has made its presence felt again in the last five or six months with this uh, invasion of Ukraine. Um, and I think... I, I think... I think uh, General Sanders is, is quite right that there obviously needs to be some major changes to the way that the British Armed Forces are structured, um, to the way in which planning is is done in terms of future capabilities and so on. Because as much as we've gotten good at fighting those conflicts, you know, that are not against peers, we do need to still have that capability. Um, we've seen massive cuts to army troop numbers in the last sort of 10 years as a result of various defense reviews i think officially we're down now is it to eighty-six thousand uh in the regular army and and thirty thousand in the reserves or something like that um oh i'm I'm really not sure i think uh i think you're far more informed than me on that kind of that kind of thing but but ultimately we we you know, we are in a position where Britain has said, yeah, we want to be a world leader. We want to step up and, and, and do our part. Um, and we, we've kind of seen, you know, that the Boris, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has kind of tried to show that in the sort of various visits he's been making to Kiev to speak with President Zelensky of Ukraine. Um, and, and the issue at the moment is not so much one of whether the public would support sending British troops to uh, fight in Ukraine if the situation required it. I think it's more the fact that there wouldn't really be an awful lot that the United Kingdom could really deploy 
um, in terms of no. making a massive dent. Um, obviously, the idea with NATO is that it is collective defence, and so in theory, if such a deployment became necessary, it wouldn't just be British troops going in on their own. Um, we would hopefully see uh, American and, and, and other uh, NATO allies joining um, and, and forming some sort of coalition force. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think like the Baltics and Poland are just kind of, kind of like pulling at the lead almost desperate to do something, right? Yeah. But ultimately, I, I think what we, we need to be very, very aware of is that the, the, the state of the British Armed Forces in the possibility that we, we do need to be able to fight on our own if a situation comes to it. Um, obviously, the last exactly. time we had to fight on our own was 40 years ago now. Um, obviously, we've literally just had the 40th anniversary of the Falklands conflict. Um, and that was probably the last time that the United Kingdom stood pretty much on its own and fought a, a, a war with no sort of additional support from Allied troops and so on. Obviously, the risk of, yeah. of an invasion of the Falklands by Argentina now is, is very much redu reduced. But at the end of the day, we can't guarantee that there is not going to be some other event that pops up in the future um, where the UK could very well find itself fighting alone. Um, yeah. I mean, you say it's, well, it's definitely reduced. I mean, I'm not saying that there's going to be an invasion in the next you know, couple of years, but China um, are definitely kind of, have been quite vocal in saying that they recognise um, uh, Argentina's claim over the Falklands, right? And, and they reject the British claim. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe in, you know, sometime in the future, Argentina, if, uh, you know, are feeling themselves enough to maybe to make another crack at it um, especially if they have almost like a guarantee of defense from from china if the you know, if the british do try and uh you know defend them with by you know by force um quite an unlikely scenario i can't imagine china wanting to get into a war you know in south america when they focus obviously currently um firmly just kind of in their own kind of backyard at the moment yeah. um China is definitely kind of ramping up, um, you know, elsewhere, um, you know, obviously they've got their bases in Africa, obviously they, they're making allies in South America, um, so, you know, it, it is a possibility of something again happening in the future, and, you know, I very much doubt that the British, you know, British Navy in its current form is um, capable of, of kind of having a prolonged war with with Argentina of all people at the moment, um, you know we don't we definitely don't have the uh, the um the I think, of, yes of, of assets in order to yeah exactly because even back then presence. yeah cause, I mean because back then you know we had to um, there was a lot of kind of civilian craft kind of requisitioned right to, for for that war. Um, and that's back then when obviously the navy was a lot bigger than, than it is now. Yeah. Um, so you know any kind of war now. I mean, obviously, obviously, you know the we have, we have uh, two aircraft carriers, which obviously would obviously play a, a huge role in anything like that. Um, uh, yeah, it, it, like, like I said, mainly yeah. Like, it, I don't think at the moment that the UK is really capable of fighting a war by themselves um, without any kind of significant uh, assistance from anyone else yeah and again it, it comes back to this whole thing of we have 
very high-end technology in small numbers, particularly when we're thinking about the Navy. We've got two very capable aircraft carriers. We've got a number of, of a small number, admittedly, of very advanced guided missile destroyers and frigates. Um, and ultimately, we need to recognise that were we to face another, you know, sort of Falklands War type scenario, we are going to lose ships because mm -hmm. the the, the anti-ship warfare capabilities, particularly of nations, as we say, like China, are very, very advanced. It's something that the Chinese have spent a great deal of money and, and, and put a, a lot of research into. And they have a very, very significant and potent um, anti-ship missile arsenal, which is intended for targeting sort of foreign aircraft carriers, in particular uh, sort of the US carrier battle groups. Um, at the moment, I think, you know, were we to face a, a conflict against, say, China, um, we would see a significant loss of capability to the Royal Navy because, ultimately, it, it is a case of we've got a lot of eggs in very few baskets. Um, and I, I do kind of wonder, again, maybe is the future of sort of not just armed you know conflict on the ground but maybe armed conflict at the sea and even in the air is it going to be a case of we're going to see quantity being more important than quality maybe um i think i think we're kind of already seeing a, a shift in that direction in in, in sort of uh, combat aviation in that a lot of nations are kind of looking at future um fast jets and thinking yeah okay we'll still have manned fast jets but we can really improve our capability, our reach, and our presence by having a large number of significantly cheaper um, sort of unmanned aerial vehicles. We're, we're obviously seeing um, Australia um, with the uh, Boeing uh, MQ-28 uh, Foxbat, or was it Foxbat? Is that the right name? I'm trying to remember now. Um, uh, sounds right. Sounds like <laughs> the, the Loyal Wingman project, um, as it as it's known in both Australia and the US. Yes, um, we're obviously seeing discussions in the UK about a similar capability being produced as well to um, work with the Tempest sixth generation fast jet, which is currently uh, being designed, and 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 um, we're obviously seeing our allies Japan and others working with us on that project. And I do wonder if. Um, sort of the Royal Navy's shift towards the Type 31 and Type 32 frigate programs, um, which are lower cost, sort of less capable platforms, is a recognition of the fact that actually it's going to be better to have more platforms, albeit less capable platforms, but more platforms that are able to therefore be a bigger presence, uh, a, a bigger reach, uh, you know, spread of, of resources. Um, I think the Americans have kind of already concluded on this as well, because um, we've seen, obviously, the Ticonderoga-class cruisers, which were kind of their main sort of missile arsenal uh, ships. Um, they are being retired over the next few years with uh, no replacement planned. And the US Navy's most recent sort of planning review has suggested that the future fleet will be comprised of a significant number more ships but with a smaller 
uh, weapons load on each. And I think we've kind of seen that probably uh, most clearly with the Constellation class frigates, which are, uh, are now uh, either under construction or still in planning, um, mm -hmm. where we're seeing a, a, a frigate-sized vessel with well under half, I would say, of the number of missiles of the destroyers that the US Navy operates. Um, does that make those ships far less useful? No, not not at all. It just means that the US can afford to build more of them. It can have them far more widespread. They can be more of a visible presence. Um, and ultimately, should a conflict with China erupt and casualties end up being high, you know, the, the US has that capability and, and has the resources where I think at the moment, both the British Army, the Royal Navy and, and arguably the Royal Air Force as well, don't have that sort of um, quantity that would be needed um, for a, a modern peer-on-peer -peer conflict. Yeah, we can, I can um, briefly touch on Syria if you want, I can do five minutes on it. Um, yeah, of course. So the uh, the expected Turkish offensive hasn't materialised yet. Um, of course, you know Turkey and uh, have been talking about uh, you know continuing their operation in northern Syria to you know create this quote unquote safe zone, um, ten kilometres or thirty kilometres deep. Sorry, along the northern Turkey Syria border. Um, obviously, we had two operations already we had olive branch and oh my god what was the other one um olive branch and the other one we'll call it for now have been the two offensives um and we've been expecting a third um you know there's been some movements there's been a lot of threats it seems to be coming um just i don't know when at the moment i suppose that's exactly what turkey are trying to do they're trying to keep it maybe a bit more of a surprise um but we're expecting of course you know this offensive um in the uh kind of north northwest kind of north um well actually no, i'm not even northwest just mostly north i suppose um northwest to kind of take uh the, the apparently the, the target is going to be um tal rafat um which is a kind of kurdish um enclave i suppose um in the middle of kind of turkish controlled areas um to the you know bordered by Turkish areas to the north, west and east, and also bordered by Syrian government to the south, which I suppose they have at the moment a bit of an uneasy alliance with, I suppose is the best way of describing what, what's going on there. Um, and of course, Turkey have said they want to take the city of Manbij as well. I am probably pronouncing that horrifically wrong. Um, but yeah, they, they seem to be the two main targets and targets that have been talked about for years and years and years. They, you know, it's, it, it's again, one of those things that's been in the pipeline for a long time and has never really materialised. So that's now apparently expected um, fairly soon. I mean, I would personally expect it in the next six weeks, maybe. I know it's not a very, <laughs> quite a wide time frame, but... I, I would not at all be expect, uh, surprised to see it happening in the next six weeks based on kind of rhetoric and um, some movement that's going on at the moment. Of course, what might be delaying that is there's currently quite significant infighting um, between two groups um, in uh, the Turkish kind of occupied region of northern Syria. So um, 
they have been fighting between I'm gonna double check the names here. Um I believe Ara Al Sham is the other one. Um and the other one is Jabat as Samia. Um they've been fighting. I can I I've been really struggling to find the exact cause of the fighting. Um it seemed that um they've been trying to kind of merge Ara Al Sham kind of into um, more under kind of Turkish leadership, they've been rejecting that a little bit, um, and there's been some infighting over the last few days and week. Uh, there was fighting last night, which seems to be left maybe seven to ten dead um, between both of those groups, um, and of course the uh, largest group in Idlib currently, which is you know as we all know as HTS. Um, previously Jabat al-Nusra um, and of course were and I suppose still are Al-Qaeda's um, group in, in Syria. Of course they, they've been trying to uh, distance themselves from that um, of course over the last decade or so um, and you know they, they, they seem much more focused on their own uh, area rather than conducting any kind of terrorist attacks abroad as you kind of expect from al-Qaeda. Um, I suppose the closest comparison we can have to them with maybe maybe the Taliban, you know, very, very hardline, very um, religious kind of extremists, but far more focused with their own backyard than kind of um, attacking abroad like, like ISIS were. Um, so yeah, they they um, leave uh, obviously allied with Harar al Sham. Um, there was rumours that they'd moved into Turkish areas last night. Uh, as far as I can tell, never actually happened. It seemed they kind of stopped at the border between Aleppo and Idlib, um, and just kind of were there to threaten, kind of uh, put some pressure on. Um, as they are, you know, the I'd say the most competent, most well equipped, best armed kind of group in in on the opposition side in Syria. Um, so yeah, there's, you know, there's, there's things happening in Syria. Of course, it's um, largely a kind of frozen conflict as things stand at the moment. It's been, it's been a good long while since any kind of territory changed hands. Um, probably the last time was the um, Turkish intervention against the Syrian government back in God, when was that? Twenty nineteen, maybe twenty nineteen. Um, yeah, when uh, the Syrian government made the, you know their, their offensive into Idlib, and then Turkey intervened on on the side of the opposition, pushed them kind of back to their almost starting point, and give or give you know give or take a few kilometers here or there. Uh, of course, there's been you know rumors that um, Assad and the government have would are going to try another offensive. That doesn't seem very likely as things stand. Um, you know, mostly because Russia are, you know, their main ally, are very, very tied up with their own war at the moment in Ukraine, and I can't imagine Russia diverting any kind of their air assets to Syria to help Assad fight his battles when they're very much struggling with their own. Um, yeah, I think that's that's all I have at the moment on on Syria. Um, of course, there's, there's still clashes in northern Iraq between Turkey and uh, Kurdish militants, PKK Leh, 
Uh, they released a video today of a raid against a Turkish outpost, which I believe three or four soldiers were killed. Um, but at the moment, the kind of northern Iraq kind of conflict is, is very much going Turkey's way there. Several bases being built there. They kind of control a huge kind of part of northern Iraq, the Kurdistan region of northern Iraq. Um, but yeah, there's, there's not a whole not a whole lot going on, I don't think, at the moment. Unless any, any of you guys have anything else to add? Uh, I don't think so for um, Syria, but I can add more on the Asian Pacific region, uh, region if we sell time. Yeah, um, I'll do a quick sum up of some of the other news stories, and um, if you've got anything you want to chip in and add to that, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll add that before we close. Um, this week, an Iranian F-14 Tomcat has crashed, um, according to local media. Um, reports are that the aircraft suffered some form of engine failure, uh, resulting in both pilots ejecting over the city of Isfahan. Um, in other news, Uganda has taken doing? delivery of three Russian-made uh, Mi-28NE helicopters. Um, the arrival of these helicopters came as a little bit of a surprise as there's not been a formal announcement about any orders or deliveries being made to Uganda um, but photographs of a, a welcoming parade for the aircraft uh, appeared on social media uh, yesterday morning uh, in other news a Chinese built uh, Venezuelan Air Force jet trainer crashed uh, earlier this week in Zulia State um, both crew members ejected but are injured and have been taken to hospital um, the cause of the crash uh, at this time is not known. Uh, and China has unveiled its third aircraft carrier, the CV-18 Fujian. Uh, the ship is the first indigenous built aircraft carrier built with steam catapults for the Chinese Navy, um, as opposed to the uh, previous ships which used a short takeoff uh, ski jump on the front of the deck. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that? Uh, no, no. I think, uh, yeah, I think, you've covered I think it you well. said as well. Okay. And with that, uh, I'd like to thank uh, Global again for joining us for um, for this episode. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on, mate. Oh, it's a pleasure of mine. I thank you all for inviting me. It was a great. I uh, definitely learned a lot, especially with our new events in Syria. Of course, uh, the ever-evolving situation in Ukraine. Indeed. And uh, with that, ladies and gentlemen, um, as always, you can catch us on YouTube. Uh, you can download the podcast for free from rss.com or you can catch us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and a variety of other platforms. Without any further ado, we're going to wrap it up for this week. Um, so thank you very much for listening and uh, we will catch you again for episode two in a couple of weeks' time.